Hey, welcome to this episode of Let's Chat. I'm your host, Chris Revel, coming to you the Cat Cave in Providence, Rhode Island. If I sound a little quiet to you right now, that is only because I'm recording this at like midnight while my wife is asleep in the other room, so I'm talking really soft. I don't want that to undercut the excitement I am for this in- I have for this intro. Today's guest is Kevin Bartini. Kevin Bartini can be found on KevinBartini.com. He's got a new album right now out called The Unintentionally White Album. Please go buy it. It's fucking great. It's super funny. He's a great comedian. And he also has an amazing podcast called The Movie Preview Review Podcast, which we talk about in the episode. Yeah, but basically, there's some pretty short episodes. They review movies based off of the preview. Also available on iTunes. Uh, for Kevin, everything's kevinbartini.com. It's like martini with a B. In the episode, we refer to someone named Adam uh, a handful of times. That would be comedian Adam Lash, who is a friend of his, who's also a guest on this show. Adam basically told me about Kevin, and that's how this ended up happening. We, we, when Adam and I were talking about George Carlin Way, he was talking about how he did it with his friend uh, Kevin Bartini, who was the man behind George Carlin Way in New York City. And I followed him on Twitter and then just basically asked him to come on. He said yes, and then we did it. We recorded this on uh, New Year's Day. and was just fucking cool dude. We talked for like an hour and a half. Uh, Kevin's a warm-up comic for The Daily Show, The Colbert Report. He's done Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. He's written for HBO. He's like, he's got quite the resume. He's a, he's a comedian. Uh, he's, a, he's a working comedian. He's a professional comedian. Like, I always hear about these people. Like, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I always hear about these people who are just making their living working in television and, like, doing stand-up and doing all these things. And you may not know their name, but they're making a living in New York as comedians. And they don't have to tour their entire life away. And Kevin's one of those dudes. Like, he acts, he writes, and does stand-up. And he's fucking great. Um, I, I picked his brain. Like, I had to know what it was like working for Colbert Report, especially. Uh, the show had just ended, so I probably had just saw the last episode maybe a week before I interviewed him. And he got to talk about what it's like being there the last night. And, hell, I mean, that party, that after party, I mean, fucking Brian Cranston and Bradley Whitford, we talk about those two guys because I fucking love those guys. And uh, I really like this episode because it was more of a conversation about comedy than a real interview. Like, he was just, Kevin was so generous with this time. And, like, I just, what really nice guy. And, I, you know, I just can't stress that enough. Of a lot of the guests I've been having on recently are really nice. Um, early in the show, it was like my friends, and I asked people on that I knew because I knew they were nice. And then when you're getting strangers and we're meeting on Twitter and like, hey, talk to me on Skype for an hour, that's, that's I don't know, that can go a, a different way. But as of right now, I've had nothing but really positive experiences with people who just very gracious with their time and very open and talking to me and coming on the show. It's been really great. You know, please uh, buy Kevin's album, the Unintentionally White album, on iTunes. Uh, Kevin's on Twitter at Kevin Bartini, but you know, one-stop shop, KevinBartini.com. Kevin's got a great podcast called the M- the Movie Preview Review Podcast. It's great because there's some episodes that are like ten minutes long, some are longer. Uh, Adam Lash has been on there, and they uh, they like Kevin will watch a preview of a movie without seeing the movie and then do a whole episode on it. I listened to, I think, one of the Medea ones, and oh my god, it was so fucking funny. 
Uh, again, this was just a really great episode. I'm just I'm so ecstatic the way the show has been going. I've been getting some really great guests, and Kevin, this is like this was a really big deal for me to have him on. Like he works for Colbert, and he worked for the John Stewart, and he'll be working for Larry Wilmer, and it's just cool. <laughs> you know, we're just a couple dudes in our apartments on New Year's Day in our sweats, chatting about things we love, and it's a really fun episode. So please check out Kevin on the internet, kevinbertini.com. Did I mention kevinbartini.com and the Unintentionally White album, which is now available on iTunes? I keep hammering that away because I really want him to make a lot of sales because of this episode because it was just so nice to come on. Uh, check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash let's chat. Check us out on Twitter at let's chat podcast. And all of the episodes now from episode 41 on are also available on Square Pop. Square Pop, too cool to be cool. But really, go to squarepop.com. Uh, this podcast will be on there and a bunch of other cool podcasts, sketches, art-related things. It's um, like a podcast network, I guess. It's a really great site. Just go to squarepop.com as well. Yeah, it's like fucking late. Um, thanks for listening. Please subscribe on iTunes. And here is an episode with Kevin Bartini. Now I'm in the limelight cause I rhyme tight Time to get paid, blow up like the world trade Born sinner, the opposite of a winner Remember when I used to eat sardines for dinner Peace to Raw G, Brucey B, Kid Debris Funk, Master Flex, Love, Funk, Star, Ski Damn, it's, it's been a great time to be alive the last few years Like, in terms of like podcasting Especially like when I have had like commutes or something Yeah It just makes driving so much easier Oh god, yeah, it's the best, man I, You know, I drive a lot to gigs long distance And those things chew up hours It's perfect Oh, I love that shirt, first off Oh, thanks I, I, have, I have my Simpsons shirt on But my Breaking Bad was my number two uh, choice My sister just gave me this over Christmas I'm trying to Wear it in. I like to get a more weathered look to a yeah t-shirt like that. I don't um I don't do a lot. I don't usually wear t-shirts. I don't wear funny t-shirts, and I don't wear a lot of t-shirts that advertise. Certainly not corporations or you know either other people's works a lot. Especially if I haven't been a part of it. It's weird, but but it's Breaking Bad. <laughs> it's Breaking Bad. I just met Cranston a couple of days ago. Yeah, you just you just stole like one of my questions. Like uh, man, yeah. Well, I I have stuff written down so I don't forget. No, I mean, do you do some sort of natural intro that I'm jumping on here? Or? Oh, no, no. I do intros alone. Um, I don't know why. I just always record them before. Um, yeah, I mean, you were at the fucking center of the universe the other night. You were at the Colbert Report the last night because you're, you're a warm-up comic for everybody, according to the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so you do Daily Show, Colbert, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I did uh, – yeah, I did like – Probably 30 episodes of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire a few years ago. With Meredith? Yeah, I did them with Meredith when she was the main host. And then uh, I did a week or so where she was at the Olympics, so they had guest hosts. Which oh, was, wow. Yeah. Kat, you know Kat Dealey, the British actress, model? She was oh, one. Yeah. Uh, I remember she gave me a kiss on the cheek afterwards. And I, every time I see her on TV, I, I hold that over my wife a little bit, you know. Oh, oh look that's at that. amazing! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I play it off like she's one of my, you know, one of my exes. So. Yeah, like oh yeah, you know. What what I found um about uh, even with Adam too um you got you come off for a comedian you come off very normal and healthy. 
yeah, I guess. Um, I, I think that's, that's probably why Adam and I work well together. Is that's not comedians? What the hell? Yeah. Well, I don't know, man. There's a there's a there's a bunch of us who are pretty normal. Uh, I think times have changed. You know. Like, yeah, I agree. Um, cocaine isn't uh, nearly as prevalent as it was in the glory days or the early days of stand up, and uh, I think that had a big factor in a lot of these guys' personalities and. Oh, yeah. Personality dis- disorders, but um, we're well, we're thinking of people who just love comedy too. It's not fame; like you just actually love comedy and the art of it. And then, uh, so let me start from the beginning, though. You're wh- where are you from? You're from Mass, is that correct? Yeah, from a, a town called Lee, Massachusetts, which is in the Berkshires uh, on the Western Massachusetts border with New York State. Nobody ever knows the Western Mass. No, it's. It's a uh, it's nice. gorgeous. It's gorgeous and it's it's hidden away and it's very uh very bucolic. Um just to give you an idea, the listener an idea of, of the Berkshires. I grew up oh maybe 2 miles from uh like where Norman Rockwell did all of his stuff. So all, it's it's that kind of quintessential America. It's it's literally Norman Rockwell's America. So uh that's the, you know, and it's a very nice area for, um, like, during the summer times, there's a lot of summer stock theater. There's a lot of, of museums, and there's Tanglewood, which is world famous, and the Boston Symphony summers there. And so there's a lot of culture um, mixed with my town was a blue collar. It's a mill town, you know, um, made a lot of uh, the paper for Mead and Kimberly Clark, things like that all growing up. So it's, it was kind of a cool best of both worlds because you got – it was blue collar. It was just regular people, but also um, there was a lot of culture at your disposal if you wanted to, to partake of it. Yeah, I went to a summer camp in Great Barrington when I was younger up there, and uh, I'm from Connecticut, so like, but like Central Connecticut, so straight above was Western Mass. So like, my grandma went to Smith, and she used to drag me up there all the time for her stuff. So like, I love Northampton, Amherst, and yeah, that whole region. I, I've not done a lot of time in Northampton. Um, I've been to Amherst a couple of times, but uh, I always mean to go over there. I'm crim- for the amount of you know how close I grew up to it, I'm criminally negligent in the amount of times I've spent in in, in there. Um, but yeah, no, Great Barrington is awesome. I love that town. Well, that's good though, because you know you got to move away from home, but like, because like same here, two hours from my parents' house, so it's like you know on our own doing our thing. But like, if I need to. Something happens, I can be home tonight. Well, that was – yeah, that was a definite factor in choosing New York City because, I mean, I moved down here when I was only, like, 20. I was – you know, I started out as a comic young, so I started out at, like, 19, and I, and, and I made um, – I did the first year out of Albany, and then uh, when it was time – Were you in college? No, I, I dropped out. I didn't really do college. I did a little community college, but I dropped out to become a comic. I didn't um, – But why Albany? Because that's the nearest comedy club to my parents' house. Okay, that's cool. Albany's a interesting town. Works is over there, forty five minutes away, and then I met a. There was a, a very small scene of new comics uh, coming out of there at the time, but it was you know I got to get up once or twice a week and then find some open mics. But after about a year, it was time to move to New York and. Um, so yeah, the proximity to my hometown was a big factor. It was either going to be New York or Boston. You know, Los Angeles didn't make sense, and there wasn't a huge scene in like Austin, Texas, the way there is now. It was just like yeah. um, I'm fortunate that 
I chose New York over Boston only because I figured I would do a couple of years in Boston and then have to make my way to New York anyway. And I might as well do those first couple of years here in Manhattan. So I'm, I'm lucky that I grew up only two and a half hours away. Yeah. And I mean, and doing, and like starting out in Albany, it's like, it's not the Midwest, but it has a more Midwest sensibility than Boston or like, you know what I mean? It's not, it, no, it's, it's upstate New York. It's a different, cause I went New to school York, in it a, it doesn't have Harvard or MIT or history, yeah. you know, it's, or culture or anything. It's, <laughs> yeah. I went to college in uh Pulteney, Vermont, which is like an hour plus from Albany. So like we've been to like Albany, I had a friend there we'd visit all the time. I was like, Oh, all right but like but then that's like because you know a comedy you can't just do comedy in one place you have to like travel it around and learn different like things but albany sounds like one of those like that sounds like an okay place to start like you know you embarrass yourself who gives a shit it's albany compared to other places it's not like it was a thriving comedy scene there was there was the one i mean there really is if you're looking to get on stage as much as you can in your early years it was a shitty place to start frankly because there was only one club um, the comedy works and they were great. Uh, Tom Nicky, who owns it and now his son runs it, the two of them, they were always great. They would give us, you know, novices five minutes, uh, at the beginning of their late shows on Friday and Saturdays, unless it was a week where they had a real huge headliner, then they wouldn't let any of us on. Um, so they did their best to take care of us and give us spots, but that only worked out to, you know, if I was lucky four or five spots a month. So if you're looking for a town to immerse yourself in comedy, there's Albany does not have a thriving scene uh, at all. I would, I would recommend if you want to start somewhere else, you know, go to Seattle, go to Austin. Um, you know, Minneapolis, I think has a cool little scene now. Yeah. I've heard and Portland is supposed to have a good one. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of places. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, uh, for comic beginner cities where you can, you know, you can find a lot of, um, open mics and cafes and, and opportunities, which Albany didn't have. The only reason I did it, like I said, it was literally yeah. the closest comedy club to uh, to where I lived. And it worked out because uh, you're a professional stand-up comedian. Like, you don't have a day job or anything. Right, yeah. Well, I mean, it worked out. Yeah, it's, we're talking 14 years later, but... Yeah, of, of course, of course. I think I think Amy Poehler has that amazing quote. It's like, uh, what's it like to be... Someone asked her, like, what's it like to be an overnight success? She's like... Work your ass off for 10 years, and then people notice you. Absolutely. You keep busting your ass, and tenacity is a big part of this, you know. Um, there's a lot of guys who I started out with when I, you know, opened mics and stuff when I came to New York who fallen completely off, who I would have thought would have been in it for the long haul, and, you know, life gets in the way. Some guys, uh, their focus is more on money and they give it a few years and realize that it's a lot harder to make money than they think. And then they go back to, to college or to law school. And some guys get a girl pregnant and they have to go get a job and they can't do it anymore. And it's, um, it seems to be those of us who, uh, who made more of the, you know, we're a little bit more tenacious or, or, or willing to sacrifice more are the ones who, uh, who stick, who stick in it year in, year out. And you're married though. So you even found like, a wife out of it like that would support this life yeah I, i'm pretty lucky about that is she like a day job haver or is she another night owl no she's a real person yeah she's a personal she's a personal trainer and she does um she teaches at in here in new york at like these really upscale 
uh, boutique kind of fitness centers, you know, like. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's always coming home. She 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 crosses paths with more celebrities than I do. You know, the people she trains and works out. She's always coming in and so and so. It's pretty cool. Have celebrities to the is it to the point where you don't care when you meet them anymore? I mean, I'd imagine you must have come across everybody. Yeah, I would say I don't care. It's certainly still cool. Um, yeah, it's not. I would never now go stand in line on at Comic Con for an autograph. You know what I'm saying? I, I, but like, no, absolutely, getting to you know, getting to meet certain guys or or like last week after Colbert, all the. I mean, Cranston, man, Cranston, he's the guy. You know who I also saw on your Twitter feed that you met that got me even more, a little more jealous was Bradley Whitford. Well, that was a big one. That was, he was the one who I was most excited about that night probably because uh, I'm a huge West Wing fan. Yeah, me too. I'm a Johnny Come Lately, but love it. Love it, love it, love it. Love yeah, it. and, and I, I ended up talking to him for probably 15, 20 minutes. His son was there, and, uh, you know, you, 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 you get past the celebrity factor pretty quickly when you're just talking to somebody and they're just we just one on one and we didn't you know that's the thing you don't go up and and bombard them with questions about west wing or or that kind of shit you just talk to a guy he just happens to be famous uh we ended up talking about chris farley and the beatles and and all sorts of other topics that had nothing to do with with uh with celebrity he was a cool guy and you got to meet him in that sense because you were also like an employee of the show so it wasn't like you were like a fan like me you're like you're, in that moment, you're peers because you're like, I work here, and you're you're in my space in a way. To an extent, absolutely. That yeah. and that's the way it was uh, that night when I actually hung out with him. Was at the cocktail party. We had a big rap party where we were all bust down. So I was in a private function of you know maybe 500 people. Everybody there was either there because they were one of the celebrity guests on the show, or they work for the show. You know, so it's yeah. that it's that little bit of a in that moment inner sanctum if i just happen to bump into him uh, on the street you know there's no way you get 15 minutes no of course oh I, I watched that last episode it was it was incredible i i loved it i loved it so much i loved how he uh is he didn't what well, he didn't die he cheats death officially and then and becomes immortal which is perfect. it was the perfect way to end um i hate asking these questions but like i feel like it's it would be bad if i didn't is Stephen Colbert as nice as everyone I've ever known has ever? Because I've had a friend who does uh, did set design for a company that did Colbert Report, yeah. and so I was, and this is years ago. I was like, ah, oh, so you work for Colbert, and like my in laws live in Jersey, so I've always heard stories of him. Not no, no, no lie, I've heard nothing but he's just like the sweetest, hardest working, nicest man. It's like working for your father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He absolutely is. He yeah. he, he doesn't he doesn't disappoint. He's a genuine guy. Um, I, I, I remember when I first started on his show, uh, I went in to watch a taping, just to hang out backstage and watch a taping the night before, which is a good thing to do when you're the warm-up guy coming into a show, is to see how the other warm-up guy does it. You know, each show is different of what they expect of you, what they want you to do, so I went in just to get a feel, and, you know, and, uh, I guess after the taping... Uh, you know, the producer introduced me to him and uh, just said, oh, this is Kevin. He's going to be our, you know, warming up for us. And he just stopped right there. And we talked for a good five minutes, just chatted. And um, he was just a really genuine guy. And this is a, you know, I'm a guy he hadn't even met. I was hadn't even done an episode of the show yet. Um, I've always just been a really, I've, I've admired him 
um, and then getting to work with him and, you know, getting to meet him and know him a little bit. Uh, you know, I don't want to make it sound like he and I golf together on Saturdays. Uh, but he's always just, just genuine and, and a true blue nice guy and a pro. And, and, and much of that also the same can be said for John Stewart, you know. Um, when I got on to the, to the Daily Show, that's, that came first and then Colbert came later. But the one thing that really impressed me right off the bat, my first, ep- first couple episodes there is meeting the staff and, and stuff, um, everybody on that show, and the, the same now an extension can be said about Colbert, everybody that I met was just wildly confident uh, gracious, nice, welcoming, genuine nice people, and 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 you don't always get that in television. You get, you know, you come into a scene and, and there's people can be dicks, it can be whatever. Both of those shows, everybody you encountered, uh, was almost without exception, was that. And and what I what I learned and picked up um, on was was it, it's because it's the example that the boss set. You know that. That, that John was very much the same way, and, and Stephen. And so I think when you come on to a show and the boss is a good guy and is a good guy off camera too, um, it, 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 it breeds this, this spirit amongst, amongst, the, um, amongst the staff, and, and that is something that I think then carries over in the work. So that's an example from those guys that I've picked up and kind of thrown in my back pocket if I'm ever lucky enough to uh, – to get to helm a show or something like that and be the, the, the main guy, uh, you know, the way you treat the staff and the way you be genuine off camera, uh, is, 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 is wildly important. That's one thing I've learned from them. Absolutely. That's uh, how, so how does you, um, get into the racket of warm up comics? Like, I mean, that's gotta be like the, a good gig as a comic. You're doing stand up and you're getting paid. It's perfect for a stand-up because, yeah, and you get to do it early in the day before your spots at night. Um, there's a lot of – it is. It's a, it's a cool job. Um, I got originally into it. I was writing for a comed- – I do a lot of ghost writing for comedy. Yeah, I heard you say that. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, and uh, I was writing for a comic who did – does some warm-up work. And uh, on different shows, and he recommended me to my first one to kind of back him up, and then um, and then I would get once you've done one or two, you kind of get into a rotation. And the thing is, a lot of these it's a it's a small TV town here in New York. We have a lot of shows now, but a lot of producers and whoever they bounce from show to show. And yeah. you know, today's intern is tomorrow's producer, and. Um, so your name kind of gets bandied about, and you just find yourself on a list of, of guys who do warm-ups. So you may get a – just to get a call out of the blue, so-and-so, you know, so-and-so from The Daily Show recommended you. We called them asking who we could get to fill in for this or that, and that kind of stuff happens. And then um, you, it just it's just a matter of one guy kind of got – my foot in the door and and then i i had a i I was ready for a job like that i'd done a lot of improv training and had hosted a million stand-up shows so the muscle that it takes to be a warm-up guy i developed and um i was able to do a good job and and you know and then when the the daily show came calling it was because you know they were looking for a new guy they'd had you know they have like two or three on a rotation at all times and they a spot opened up, and my name got thrown out there, and a lot of 
producers and writers on The Daily Show are um, are stand-ups and that I've, I'd known through stand-up. So, you know, my name got thrown out there and I was just, uh, yeah, yeah, he's great. Let's give him a shot. And so I came in, you do one audition show. And if John likes you, you got the gig. And if he doesn't, uh, move on to the next show. But fortunately, he liked me. Yeah, I know the a lot of the – I didn't even – just been learning that um, – Almost everyone on the Daily Show is a stand-up because I went to the the Daily Show did a stand-up writers tour or the writers of the Daily Show uh, the writers of the Daily Show did a or do some tours that came to Providence where I live and then uh, Jason or no Jordan Clapper was the correspondent uh, was like a surprise set for it and did some stand-up and it was fucking all those dudes it was uh, Adam Coff Trayvon Free. Was Adam Lowett there? Yes, that was the the host guy. Uh, all great. Um, so fucking funny. And, like, I, some of those guys I would imagine weren't maybe ready for, like, a small theater, but, like, they killed it. Like, uh, absolutely. I, I, I'm so glad. And it wasn't just, like, we work for The Daily Show. Let's talk about Jon Stewart the whole time. Like, they all had fleshed out awesome fucking bits. Actually, Adam, uh, Adam Coff was my favorite one. He cracked me up so hard. Yeah, that was actually kind of one of my ways into the Daily Show originally was I did um, – they had uh, – there was a club called Comics here in, in Manhattan, and uh, they would do an evening of the Daily Show and Friends, and it would – and I was a friend. I was, you know, I was buddies with guys, so I would end up on this once-a-month show. I probably did it five or six times, and uh, it would be some writers or producers who do stand-up, you know, some correspondence dropping in, and then – and then just friends, and, and like, uh, I, that's how I got to meet Robert Schimmel a couple months before he died, you know, was he was on wow. a Daily Show and Friends show, and uh, yeah. yeah, and guys like that, so, so yeah, they don't, not a lot of them, because of the rigors of the job of being a writer on the, and how all-encompassing of it, do stand-up regularly, but a lot of them have, have the stand-up chops, have done it, um, you know, do it when they can, but I, I, um. You know, that, that's one of the things I've always thought is if uh, an opportunity to write for one of those shows came up, because I've, I've submitted once or twice, um, kind of, you know, understanding to, for myself that if you got a job writing for a show like that, that would be, you know, for whatever it is, a year or two years, that's a, that's a pretty much a, an end to stand-up. you got to really focus on all your attention on, on something big like that. Oh, yeah. Have you ever listened? There's a good podcast called the Nerdist Writers Panel, and they've had uh, the writers of both of those shows on there, and it's... Those those guys work hard, man. I don't I don't think anyone would say that they don't. Have you listened to J.R. Havlin's got a podcast? No, what's that? Uh, I think it's. See now I'm I'm in. I think it's the writers' room. I think is what it's called. But if you, if you like comedy writers talking about the craft, J.R. was yeah. a writer for the Daily Show for 19 years. Yes. I've, okay. I feel like I've heard his name. His name. He just retired this year from it, and he predated John Stewart. You know, he was there with. Yes. Craig. Yes. He was on the Daily Show without John Stewart, I believe, recently. Yeah. Recently. Yeah. 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 Anyway, he's got a podcast, and a lot of the Daily Show writers obviously have been guests on that. Oh, that'd be yeah. I'm gonna have to get on that for sure. I um, yeah. I I love that stuff. It's it's just fun from like a fan perspective. Like you can just like books and podcasts and stuff like that that didn't exist are just there now for everybody. It's fucking great. I, uh, I actually had the honor of interviewing, uh, Mike Sachs who wrote poking the dead frog. I don't know if it, it's like the, it's amazing. Uh, he's like, he interviewed everyone in comedy. So it's like a comedy interview book. So that, that was like a blast. But I kind of learned, I learned a lot from that interview, but like, uh, 
But it's it just him and I were talking about just how like like even me, I wasn't like what you'd call a comedy nerd until like maybe like two years ago. And like I'm 30. So like and I've always liked comedy, but I didn't know tons about it until like podcasting came out to be. And then like Marin and Nerdist and like all those the big ones slowly. And then it's like, oh, and then you kind of it kind of it was like became like punk rock for me where it's like you find a big podcast and listen to a guest that you like on there. And then you look up that guest on iTunes and see other podcasts they did. And then yeah. it goes out of control, which is great. Um, it, it's a cool thing. I mean, to be a fan of, of stand-up or of comedy and stuff, because especially this day and age with the amazing amount of access that a fan has to comedy and how much content is out there that you can, you can literally be, dis- it's, it, you can, it's more so than like, than like music, you know, you can literally discover all these different guys and hear their podcasts and that leads you to a new guy and then you can find oh, yeah. his stuff online and, um, it's, it's cool, you know, because I've got, I've got a, a at, at this point, a level, a level of notoriety in some circles. I have no real idea of there's there. It's hard metrics to tell how popular, well-known you are. I guess we'll see when my album comes out, how many I sell in the first month is a good metric and that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, I, I've never done a, a major TV stand-up anything. I've never done a Letterman or, or, or that kind of thing. Um, yet, still, when I where whenever I travel, there's a, a, at least a few people come out because it's me on the you know on the bill. That's great. Uh, which is a neat thing, you know, and and uh, that's all thanks to podcasts and to the internet and stuff. That um, that's why I try to make sure that the po- that whatever I put out on the internet, I, I you know I'm proud of. Uh, it's it, or, or put out for an album, I'm proud of because. It's gonna live there forever, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it, I see so many of these guys get too hungry for that. Like they're they're doing stand up three years and putting out an hour's worth of material. It's like, you, dude, you don't have an hour's worth of material, and you put this out now. Ten years from now, you're gonna be saying you're still working at it. You're gonna be embarrassed by that, and there's no pulling that back, you know. So I waited for my first album until I'd been in the business. I've been doing comedy like ten years, and I had an hour that I, you know, really worked on and been working with and, and was that I was, that I was like, okay, you know, um, I can stand behind this 10 years from now. Let's hope. That's yeah. I like that about, I think that was great. And now you got the new one coming up. How long in between, is it the same thing with like bands? Like you got your whole life for your first record and then you got a, you, like, you know, the same in like music. It's like, you get all your influences out your first record. And then the second record's like, now what do I want to say? Like, what's the, what's the, What's your time frame between albums? So your last album to your new one? Uh, it was about three years. That's a good time. It's not bad. Um, you tore a ton. The gold standard is eighteen to twenty-four months. That's what. That's kind of what George Carlin did. That's the. That's the. He kind of created this. Uh, the way you do albums and and can create one after the next and stuff. Um, so that's what he was doing. You know, eighteen to twenty-four months. Um, I figured between my first one and two, three years, I'm pretty happy with that. I'm hoping to do better. You know, I'm hoping to hit two, two and a half next one. However, there's other outside factors, you know, um, but three years is is pretty good. And, and yeah, I mean, the first album, um, I think compared to the second, I think is a little bit more disjointed because it was the best stuff I'd written over 10 years and, one you didn't i don't think you necessarily get a through line or real 
sense of who I am as compared to like the second album where, where it just kind of things transition bits one into the next. And, um, uh, there's, there's a bit more of a theme almost to it. So I think you're, yeah, you, you know, after you get the first one of your belt, I think naturally with anything you, as you mature and you grow, um, and your, your abilities and your strengths as a comic grow that, you know, naturally the next one should be better than the last and hopefully, Hopefully the next one will be better than this one. What's the uh, the new one called? <clears throat> this one coming out is called the Unintentionally White Album, and uh, it's uh, yeah, it's unfortunately what happened was um, we 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 filmed a TV special uh, uh, um, this summer, and uh, the videographer, uh, as it turns out, was just a total idiot and. Um, he screwed. He 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 filmed the show. He only set one of the three cameras. He only adjusted for the light. So the two main cameras uh, weren't adjusted for the light, and that meant that I was whitewashed out. I, I was overexposed, and that's one of the things you can't really come back from because they're you know. So I'm yeah. I'm so I'm whited out. So. And he never, between shows, checked his footage to see that everything looked good. He and he then ended up being a total nightmare afterwards. And and um, so anyway, so I, I took the audio from it, and I could salvage that, and um, we put an I put an album together, um, and then the cover art it's just a white cover with a film strip of three images that this idiot shot where I'm bleached out. And then, hence, the unintentionally white elf. Where'd you record it? I recorded it in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Oh, good old Pitts. Yeah, that was another thing, because this one was more personal and was, you know, I, uh, the first one I recorded at a club in New York City, the second one I wanted to do back home. And uh, so we got, yeah, there's a place called Jay Allen's Clubhouse um, on North Street in Pittsfield, which is a restaurant, and um, it's this huge space. And so back behind the restaurant, there is like a perfect black box theater for something like this. It was like, uh, it was almost like it was constructed to do a project. Like, you know, it sat 75, 90 people. It was dark. You know, it was, it was, I was, I could easily fill up the room three times over. It was great. So, and, and there are great people there. So if you're ever in Pittsfield, you should check out JL. Is Pittsfield, wasn't there like a GE factory there that left? Oh yeah, there's a big G. Yeah, because isn't Elizabeth Banks from Pittsfield? Elizabeth Banks is from Pittsfield. That's that's yeah yeah yeah. I don't, and, little uh, little little side fact of knowledge that's unimportant at all. Yeah right. No, it's cool. GE was there for a long time, and and um, it was a big munitions factory for GE back in like the seventies and the sixties, and they uh, made a lot of tanks and bombs. And we were actually, I think we found out later that. Uh, I think we were like number five on the government's kind of watch list of possible targets if there was ever bombing. Yeah, yeah. Like, like there was, there was uh, Pittsfield was right up there because of this huge munitions. Yeah, place. there's always those random towns like Groton, Connecticut was one because there's a submarine base, and then anywhere there's nuclear, anything coastal, really. I mean, <laughs> that now I feel safe. <laughs> Yeah, right. Living in Rhode Island in New York, we're great. I've I've lived through uh, I've lived in New York all through the nine eleven and post nine eleven hysteria. So it was uh, you know the nine eleven mass exodus. Like, how did that affect comedy? Uh how did it affect comedy? 
in the short run, it was just kind of surreal, you know, for six months. Um, long run, the the financial collapse afterwards uh, affected comedy. It, a, it made it a lot tougher to make a living as a comic because, you know, if you're a road comic, all of a sudden you're you're paying four times uh, what you were paying for a tank of gas, and uh, that cuts in. And then a lot of guys were losing their jobs and not finding other ones, and were just saying, well, fuck it, I'm going to try comedy. You know, it's kind of like all those guys who never tried stand-up and never – because they, you know, they had a nine-to-five or you – know, now they didn't, and so – the market got flooded with young comics, young guys who, you know, who uh, ended up driving down the, the, the rates, you know, of what we could make on the road because now there's more guys out there. And, and the guys who were just starting out as the hosts at clubs, you know, you, you, when I started, you had to have already been doing comedy two, three years before you could get work as a host. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, all, not that it ever – you know, you were lucky if you made 75 bucks a set, 100 bucks a set. And uh, at the time, I was a feature. So all of a sudden, you know, these guys came in, and then the clubs just stopped using paying hosts, and they were just using their open micers. And, uh, you know, and that's the time where I was moving from feature to headliner and, and, and starting there. And, you know, there was not a lot of money to be made. Um, and, and there was just a it – was, it was tough in the post, you know, through through the Bush years, uh, it was definitely tough on comedy. And you weathered the storm. Weathered the storm. Weathered the storm. That's incredible. Um, how I know you mentioned uh, notoriety before. Uh, you know what's kind of funny is I didn't even really knew I knew your name because I remember following the George Carlin Way story on Last Spin oh, really? for like years, like for a few years, and like you know it would just pop up and all that. And I talked to Adam uh, Lash, who's been on as well, about that, but um. Thank you. First off, um, <laughs> you're welcome. Is it it's safe to assume that you're an atheist? Yeah, uh, I am. I don't. I don't generally just um, label myself one thing or another. I because I think when you say atheist, the idea is people just say you don't believe in God. I just say I don't know. I err on. I err on the side that I don't – I'm closer to not believing than believing, but I, I don't know one way or the other. And my whole thing is when you say atheist, to me it's not a guy who, who doesn't believe in God. It's it's short for anti-theism. I'm just against religion. I have no time for it. I know that I don't know. I know that you don't know. And knowing that you don't know, I don't want to hear whatever it is you believe. I don't give a shit. Yeah. Do what yeah. you want to do, but – don't don't dra don't think you're going to drag me along and and I I resent that you know that uh, I have to not I can't park in front of your church you know <laughs> when I'm looking for parking in New York or name or name a street after a comic who happened to live yeah that. right yeah uh, well, I only ask because I'm a fellow atheist as well with the yeah. same lineup as you is like that I don't know I think Penn Jillette said it best is like his version of atheism is I don't know exactly so, yeah. that's what I yeah. I mean I don't know so I, I I guess that's closer to agnostic. Um, but I just – the whole organized religion just scares me and bothers me, and and I really hardened to that after – you know, that's a definite reaction also to, to 9-11 and the hysteria after that. And, and you, just, just... you just saw how evil religion can be and how evil people who use it 
and do things in the name of God can be. I mean, we grew up, sure, you learned about the Crusades, and you learned about the Klan, yeah. and you learned about all these terrible things in the name of God, but those were stories in history books, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're seeing a, a buildings collapse and 3,000 people die, uh, or 4,000 people die in the name of God. I, I saw that happen, that, you know, I saw the smoke, I smelled it, I was here, and, and then, you know, all the, and then how easily people who uh, can be co-opted just because you're part of a religion and can be swept up into something and, you know, and just used, just the way the, that the, the, the Bush administration used religious people for their own agenda and exploited them. I was like, all right, well, these are a lot of bad things that come out of uh, spending a, a Sunday in church, which I hated doing anyway as a kid. So You grew up uh, religious as well? I, I was watching your stand-up before, uh, too. Yeah. I like to do some research because uh, I, I think it's a cop-out when people say, like, oh, I like to let the guests come on and, and not know anything about them, and we get to learn it together. But, like, I learned the more you know about someone, then the cooler stories you get. Yeah, well, I was raised Catholic. Uh, I over sell it for comedic effect in my on my album my first one i was we weren't christian conservative we were we went to the cath we went to catholic school because it was there was two schools in town private and the public and the private was better than the public and it happened to be catholic uh that's a common story yeah i i was a i and i uh i knew i didn't believe in it the whole time and and i i didn't um uh, or any of that uh I just had to stick it out, and um, I didn't make my confirmation. I don't yeah, me know. either. You know, I have my aunt still claims she's my godmother. I'm like, well, no, I I left that place. So. Yeah, according to them, though, it's like once you're baptized, you're in forever. I'm like, come on, do I get some say here? Well, no, that's the that is the one thing about the Catholic Church. It's not. It's you're baptized, but then at some point you have to go through a process of confirming that. Of you know. Like, that's what it is. It's like, yeah, you're in. We're trying to get you as a kid, but here's your chance. Now you need to confirm and make your confirmation that you believe in our faith and, and you're on board. And once you're confirmed, you're in. I, de I politely declined. Yeah. Me, oh, I didn't even politely decline. I wasn't very polite at all. <laughs> I was quite the asshole. <laughs> as soon as I was out of eighth grade and out of Catholic school, I went to the public high school and I did not go to you know Sunday school and make my confirmation anything like that. I was done, and uh, that's pretty much when I you know I stopped going to church. And you weren't that. teaching Sunday school with uh, Colbert and Montclair. Hell no. no. Now the only time I step in step foot in a church is a wedding or a funeral. That's it. I had to go to a christening, and I swear to God, I turned into like a seven year old. I can't I can't behave myself. See, I was a. I didn't. I don't go to them. My sisters had two kids, and they were christened. And I didn't go. I wanted to have that fight, but it it was uh, lost pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, I just said to her. I told her. I, I I turned. I also turned down being godfather to my niece and my nephew yeah. or any kids. I'm just. I'm yeah. not. I'm, I I I said. You know. I said to my sister. Listen. I'll do anything that these kids ever need, and anything God forbid ever happens to you, I, I I'd raise them as my own. But. Yeah, it's not a legal. It's not a legal term. It's just not a legal thing. I'm, I'm not going to stand up and, and be their godfather because I wouldn't do the job, and I don't, you know. And I'm and I'm not. And part of leaving a church is I'm not going to sit and watch their indoctrination ceremony either, you know. So I don't Did, go weddings and funerals. Uh, that's it. Uh, so you're the cool uncle with the cool comedian uncle. Uh yeah. I'm How are they old enough to know like what you do yet? Uh no, they're four and two. My niece Olivia, who's four. 
she knows that I make people laugh is my job and that I work oh, I at, that and that I work at night. That's what yeah. she knows. Uh, so you're probably still in watching Frozen for a thousand times face with Yeah, they, they, yeah, exactly. They're that age. Yeah, my nephew is like eleven months, so it's just like it's still fun phase. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but she gets it. She thinks I'm funny, so that's cool. That's all that matters. So if you can't get a laugh out of her, that must like destroy you. Like, what? Olivia, please. Do you have plans to uh you know, lay down the comedy to them, like show them the way like slip them the Carlin C D and uh Seinfeld yeah. and all that stuff? Oh sure. Yeah, when I'm when they're older, they'll definitely absolutely Like a year before they're supposed to hear it kind of thing. <laughs> well that's what my uncle did for me and that was uh you know, I'm sure if you researched me you re- heard some of the interviews I've done. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I heard all Carlin, <laughs> Carlin Way and, and that whole story of just, you know, my uncle when I was like ten. I was already a stand-up fan, but he slipped me two vinyl albums of Class Clown and Occupation Fool and literally said, don't tell your parents. And I, uh, <clears throat> that's what really, you know, that was a, one of those huge tentpole moments in, in my life. Uh, so I would certainly be that uncle to, the, to those kids. Um, and in the same way that I will turn them on to Bob Dylan and Led Zeppelin, you know, it won't just be comedy. It'll be here are some of those things in life that you're going to need. And you need somebody to turn you Which on. they will soon reject because they're children and they never do what we want. No, you gotta wait till they're like 10, 11 years yeah, old. Yeah, they're right, they're that sweet age. I'm already planning buying my nephew the uh, complete collection of Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, but I was told, like, uh, one isn't a good age for that. <laughs> wait till he can read and talk. Um, but I mean, well, yeah, but talk. Like, I, I hope you don't mind talking about George Carlin Way because, like. No, of course. It's fucking great. I mean, um. It's there's a street named after for people who don't know there is a street named after George Carlin in New York City, and it took a long fucking time because guess who the Catholic Church were a bunch of fucking dickheads. Is that the best? That's a quick way to put it. Uh, you that's uh, the bullet points. Absolutely. You have a, a better yeah. version, but uh, I I think you probably talked about that to death. But I really wanted to talk to you about. I don't about, mind. I don't mind chat. Oh, cool. Um, you performed a legendary set that night that Adam had told me about, and then I ended up seeing you talk about online, and I kept reading about, like, Gilbert Godfrey, Kelly Carlin, Dave Attell, like, that part was even more interesting to me. Like, you got to perform with everybody. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you that... met the parrot from Aladdin. I mean, come on. What are you talking Gilbert about? Gilbert Godfrey. Oh, the parrot. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. I, I, I know the... celebrities love when you do that. Like, you were this 20 years ago. They're like, Sh-. I, I thought you said the parent oh. from Aladdin. For some reason, I heard parent from it, and I, I was thinking Home Alone. I don't know why. Brain fart. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Gilbert Godfrey. I'd opened for him once before, and I've met him a, a number of times. Gilbert's cool. That was, uh, that was an amazing show. It was a celebratory show at Caroline's the night that we hung the sign. And it was... Uh, Jesus, it was hosted by Colin Quinn. Oh, God. Come on. Uh, That's amazing. Yeah, let us let me think if I can run through in my mind. Who was it? Okay, so it was hosted by Colin. Uh, Kelly Carlin and George's brother Patrick both were there and on stage. Patrick did some dirty limericks and stuff. Um, we had, uh, let me think, Rick Overton, who I'd never met before. That was awesome. Uh, Eddie Brill. Ted Alexandro. Myself, uh, Gilbert Godfrey, uh, Judah Friedlander, Dave Attell, John Mulrooney dropped in, and uh, um, uh, who am I forgetting? Uh, oh, what what what's his Artie Lang? 
he was a surprise guest. He dropped in. Uh, Atel, it was just an amazing lineup. In fact, um, Time Out New York just listed that uh, for 2014 of their top 10 comedy shows of the year. They put that one at number two, which was pretty cool. Now, that must have helped you in terms of, like, notoriety, I guess, or to, like, lead to something. It hasn't led to anything, but I didn't ever do it anticipating that it would. No. I mean, uh, Adam told um, told me the story that was, like, you, you – it was um, someone – oh, God. Someone who worked for The Daily Show. I actually ended up seeing him do, do stand-up one time, and he was fucking great. Rory Albanese? Yeah, Rory Albanese. You guys yeah. were, like, just hanging out drinking, and you're like, hey, that's an idea. Yeah. And then you just kind of went with it. Yeah, that's how it started. Um, the whole thing started because uh, I was hanging out at Rory's apartment some Sunday afternoon in uh, in May. We we're just you know just shooting the shit. We were yeah we were smoking a joint and hanging out, and um, we were talking about stand up. And I guess the conversation started because he had seen he had watched like Jammin' in New York the night before, which was his favorite, and for me my favorite were, you know, class clown, occupation fool. So we're just talking George Carlin, and I, I just mentioned offhand that George's, uh, George grew up in the neighborhood that I live in, and I had walked over just a couple days before that to, um, to, to find the street that he grew up on in the building and just take a look. And, and it just surprised me that there was no markings uh, to denote that George Carlin had ever been there. Um, nothing, nothing on, no plaque on the building. I was like, you know what? They haven't even gotten around to renaming the street after him. I just said, somebody ought to do that. And yeah, Rory just said, well, you should do it. And, um, that's, that's, and it was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Cause, cause Rory is a guy who's, uh, you know, if I'm 35, he's, you know, 36, 37, you know, we're the, the same age basically. Yeah, yeah. And I met him very early on and he was just a baby comic and I was just baby comic and he was um like a like a segment producer on the daily show like he had, he had like an in you know step up from intern you know uh, one of the first on the chain is, is he was working segments doing Lewis Black's thing and just and then over the course of the years that I that I've known him and he's been my buddy he moved his way up to eventually becoming the executive producer of the daily show and uh now he's moved on. He's going to be – he's the executive Wilmore, producer of right? Larry Wilmore. Yeah. So, you know, uh, this is four years ago. So he's like 33 years old, the executive producer of a show. We're sitting in his apartment smoking a joint under his Emmys and his Peabody's. And it's kind of like, okay, this guy's my age and is very accomplished. If he says I should do something, I'm, you know, I'm going to take that advice. You know, this is, a, this is one of the guys who when they give you some advice, you should – He's got some street cred. You should you should take that advice, you know. And yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I I did it. I I just started um, contacted Kelly and and then we went and uh, got her blessing. And then I just started standing up on the street corner up up 121st Street and uh, collecting signatures. And and yeah, Adam Lash uh, was was doing it with me. He would he would stand up there sometimes. And my wife and uh, and, and some others. Time too. Yeah, I've been married for about five years. Oh, now. congratulations. What a supportive yeah. woman. She's great. She's the best. Um, yeah, isn't it? Imagine, like, because uh, I got married, like, a year ago, but, like, l- liking your wife? <laughs> well, really, if you don't like uh, your wife, why bother doing it? Yeah, that's how I always felt. But, like, that, that's the old view of things. 
but like the whole Catholic thing, it's you're Catholic. You don't get divorced. It's what you do. And I'm so opposite of that. Like, man, happiness is so fucking important. It's everything. But I bet you must have, I mean, the the 12 year old you, the 10 year old you getting the, the, the fucking comedy, the Carlin album slipped to you by your uncle must be like, you know, Kelly Carlin, you know, George Carlin's fucking daughter. And she's very funny too, by the way. I love her. She's great. No, yeah, no, I know her. I mean, I I count her as a as a friend. Yeah, like you know, <laughs> yeah. you're part of. We're you friends. know the Carlins. Yeah, I know the Carlins, and uh, I got to be. I mean, as a fan, what was really cool is like, yeah, I sure I I I got to to meet and become friends with Kelly and meet his brother, and that's cool. But I mean, I also as a fan, I got to meet and talk to his, you know the few childhood lifelong friends that George Carlin has that are still alive. Um, I got to read some of his private emails and correspondence. I got, you know, I got this backstage access to, um, to George Carlin that nobody else ever gets uh, it really. So that was a neat thing. Um, And then the day that we did the, the street dedication, I mean the, you know, the, the ceremony, um, the people who showed up for that were, a lot of the guys who I've already mentioned that were on the show that night, and then like uh, Richard um, uh, Richard Klein uh, was there, and uh, oh yeah, huge people, huge you know that I've I've never gotten to meet or would have had a chance to meet. So um, all that I mean, you know, when people ask me uh, what that that was like that day with the ceremony and, and everything, the the one thing I I say is, is Dave Attell hugged me. Like it did, yeah. There you go. Dave Attell came up and gave me a big hug. You, you don't get better than that. He doesn't seem like a hugger. Who and I, I love. No, I know you wouldn't think he gave I me a hug. Him. So, um, but uh, that was an amazing day and and an amazing lineup that night. But the 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 year before, we actually did another show. We did a fundraiser um, show for the the um, campaign at Gotham, and the lineup of that one was. Uh, me, Rory Albanese was on it. We had Dave Attell. We had Todd Berry. We had Nick DiPaolo. We had Liz Winstead. We had Louis Black, uh, Judah Friedlander, and I may be forgetting one other. But we were we put on these two killer lineups, which were the most you know like arguably the best lineups in comedy two years in a row. It was you know, and I I, I was wish we had. Uh, you know, I I don't know. It was so cool. Well, both of those nights and to be a part of those shows was really fantastic. Oh, that must be like that's just that's amazing. And then you did something so cool. I mean, I mean, Carlin's a guy. Like, even if you're not like a comedy, Carlin broke that barrier. Like, we don't need to sit here and talk about how important Carlin is. We all know that. But like, like my father-in-law, like he loves Monty Python and George Carlin. Like to him, those are the two, and the the those are the two comics. I don't know what else he likes for comedy. We don't ever talk comedy, but he will not shut up about George Carlin, and he will not shut up about um, uh, about Monty Python. And when I told him that you were coming on, he was just gushing. I love my father; ah! a really great guy, but very stoic. From New Jersey, city boy, and he just couldn't get over it. He's like, "Oh my god!" And here's how old I was when I w- heard the seven words you can't say on television, and my mom and dad yelled at me and punished me, and just would not stop talking. I was like, "I, I I'm never gonna meet he's George Carlin. He's dead." But like it's just incredible. It's cool, man. You get so many stories. I get I get so many stories because of this of uh, just you know <clears throat> talking to people and um it, you know I do I I anytime I go into a comedy club I'll 
I'll, I'll inevitably see a comic who I haven't bumped into since October, and they'll congratulate me and stuff like that. We'll talk. And I just hear these stories from people. Um, going back to, uh, to Stephen Colbert, actually, um, the next time I worked for him after the show, you know, when I saw him, he came up and, uh, you know, he's always very gracious and nice. And he was like, hey, congratulations on that George Carlin thing. And he started telling me the same story of how he was like 10 years old and, you know, somebody gave him class clown and, and he had to listen to it low. So his, like, it was like the exact same yeah. story. And then he was like, because uh, he'd read about it in the New York Times like the next day and, you know, and saw my name. And, and, and so he's like, I had no idea you were even doing that. He goes, I didn't know this was happening. I would have been there. I was like, ah, oh, you're killing <laughs> It's me. just so he odd read. that Stephen Colbert reads the paper and sees your name and knows who you are, not the other way around. <laughs> right? Your life is dead. <laughs> That's funny. Well, I'm always cur- curious about that um, because like, like the Boston Globe did a big story on me. Uh, back when we were filming this TV special, and they uh, they they had a big picture. I was like, you know, it was huge. And um, the headline said Stuart and Colbert right in it, you know, and all that. And, and it's the thing. And like a lot of obviously comedy clubs and places when they're booking me as the headliner, they they like to exploit that to to as much as they can to sell tickets. Part of the job. And it is a legit thing. I mean, look at look at you know if you know. John Stewart and Stephen Colbert think this guy's funny. He's oh, yeah. probably going to oh, yeah. do all right. So uh, I'm always kind of curious because, you know, they must have Google alerts, you know, where people on their staff have to see how. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. And I'm like, God, is this annoying to them? What are they, but, you know. They... Yeah. No, that's, that's great. But like you were saying that thing about like Colbert, but like Carlin got to do that thing that very few people do, but he gets to give people that shared experience and like. When you're talking to Colbert or they're talking to anyone, you're sharing that experience that you have, that we all have, that you, it's great. Cause like, you know, we're atheists. We don't have like religion or anything. So like, it's having those like ceremonial things is fucking, I don't know, or the ritual, having that ritual of like you were 10 and he was 10 many years apart and you're both listening to the same album and had that effect on you. Yeah. But the absolutely. fucking work you had to do to go through this. I mean, it sounds so boring. City council meetings. Yeah. Like, what the hell, man? Like, three years? You, good good for fucking you. I think you just did the work that no one ever wanted to put into it, because it wasn't, like, fun. It didn't sound fun. There was, it was fun. Uh, there were definite moments where it was stressful, where it was uh, tense. Uh, there were definitely moments, of, and there were definitely moments where, you know, I had to sit through very boring meetings uh in city council or community board meetings and that kind of stuff and you know you go in and your thing is on the agenda but the last one yeah yeah literally three hours in uh or something you know it was i i remember this one community when when the community board they have to approve this before it moves on to the city council to vote on and then that's the city council then the mayor signs it so it was getting it out of the community board took a year and a half, and the last night um, where the whole board was going to vote on it was in this gymnasium, uh, basically, you know, um, community room of some wherever, and it was hot, and it was Adam Lash and I sat there for three hours, and I was supposed to give a speech before they vote and explain, right? And uh, there's actually 
footage of this on our Facebook page. You know, you can see me get up there after three hours of talking about drainage and <laughs> and Hurricane Sandy relief of beaches and where they are on that and all, all this boring shit. And then crazy people, street people, bitching and complaining. In it. And then finally, three hours in, I go up to give the speech. And they literally cut me off after like a minute. Be like, we're just going to vote on this. And I guess they knew it was going to sail through at that point. So no need. Let's, you know. But the one interesting thing of the night, <laughs> they cut it down. So it was, that was, yeah, man, that was, there were some boring times having to sit through that. But um, all in all, what a cool adventure to, to have gotten to go on and, and uh, to, to have, have been able to do it and then, you know, people go through this of, of naming streets, counting streets, and there's not a lot of controversy. But this one was very controversial, and I had, you know, I had no idea going in what it would take, but then it became a national news story. Yeah, I it read was, about it, like, a ton. Yeah, yeah it was everywhere. Split Slider and, and Laugh Spin had it all the time. Yeah, Laugh Spin was right there from day one. They were great. They were really – and they actually ended up throwing us some money at the end for the – to, you know – uh, they were one of the three sponsors for the um, for the ceremony that day. Oh, that's great! You know, to help, yeah, to help offset the cost of a public ceremony, they were great. Um, yeah, who would have thunk it? You know, all of a sudden, the the Catholic Church, when they became involved, it became a a big thing. And you know, next thing you know, oh, they, I'm, like, I'm in the New would... York Times, and my pictures in the Daily News and the Post, and it was it was surreal. It was really wasn't cool. wasn't it the clerical error of the end of it as like the ultimate joke was like didn't they accidentally uh, name it with the church on it like like I, I don't believe in ghosts or any of that shit but if it, that saying if Carlin is looking down right now he's having the last laugh I mean we don't think he is but if he, but if, it, if 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 that were a feasible reality he's up there being like you motherfuckers yeah that was great that was um. You can't even write that. That's like if you tried to write a sketch, and then that's how you would end it. And then, but, but that's reality, and it's beautiful. Um, yeah, we almost snuck it through. Uh, we almost got it there. Let me start. Yeah. Well, one thing I learned about you from—I'll uh, call it research in air quotes—like just listening to podcasts and reading. You do a lot of writing, like so. Uh, that's fucking great. You wrote for HBO, and like you said, you do some ghost writing for comics, and like. Could you get away with being a comic nowadays and not being like someone who does it all, like writing, stand up, like you, to make it by? Yeah, I think by and large, uh, if you are a just a journeyman comedian as I am, um, you can't make a living only doing stand up. It's it's impossible. Uh, certainly, there's the guys who, um, you know, who who earn a level or receive a level of celebrity that uh <clears throat> that helps pay the bills uh and 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 you know there's a line where you can cross and all of a sudden you're you know you're making the casino gigs and the um the uh the large gigs that pay uh in the tens of thousands a night and you can be socking it away and, and making a good living but um up until that line it's it's tough so yeah for for me I've I've um, always uh, been of the mindset to do, to diversify my income streams, but have them all be from being funny or, or for performing. So I you know I'll, I'll make money uh, wherever I can, be it writing for another comic who's getting ready to do something on TV, or even to tighten up his set to uh, 
you know, to, to doing audience warm-up, to doing stand-up in the city and on the road, and to acting and, and doing television and doing, you know, I call in and do characters sometimes on the radio. And, you know, the idea being if you have enough, if I have enough streams of potential income, they're never all going to be gushing at the same time, but hopefully they'll never all be completely dry at the same time either. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so then I, I as a result... Now I got a, you know, I got a pretty neat looking resume. A lot of muscles too, you know? Yeah, yeah, and you keep building And they all flex and... into different things though. Like, you know, you could do stand-up, but you could host, and then you could be the warm-up comic, and you could write. And then, I, actually, I want to ask you about ghostwriting though, because that always is something that is kind of controversial within the comedy community. Um, yeah. Personally, I don't give a shit. I think it's great. Because I, my dad, um, to bring it to music, he uh, would always, my dad's a huge folk music fan. He's like, not all singers are songwriters and not all songwriters are singers. So right. I, I, I'm on the page of that, but there are a lot of people who get like really fucking angry at ghostwriting. Uh, you know, there are, there are purists, uh, who are against it. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of a hypocrite in that I will ghostwrite for you, but I'll never hire one for myself. Well, I, you know, yeah, no, I think that's fair. Well, you know, and, and a lot of the times, and 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 to be fair, I haven't. When I ghostwrite for people, it's rarely uh, for their actual stand-up. I have done it, and I will do it, and I will sit and watch you perform and punch up some jokes or give some critique and and help edit and tighten and that kind of stuff. A lot of times, what it is uh, is a guy is going to be um, the, the fifth and final segment of when Countdown with Keith Olbermann was on. He would have a comedian or he would have a celebrity or something, and it was a more lighthearted ending to the show and, uh, and, and on a lighter note. <laughs> so an example is if, if a comic or a person is going on there, they're finding out the topics, the news topics they're going to be talking about maybe an hour to two possibly three hours before they're live on television. Oh, wow. So wow. they, yeah, I mean, because it's based on the news of the day. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you yeah. may be, you know, they may be going on live at, at you know, 7.45, and, you know, the, they'll have the topics 3.30, 4 o'clock. So, yeah, you hire a comic who's a good writer, and you email him the jokes or the the, the topics, and then he, my job is to, to write five or ten jokes for each of those subjects in an hour or two so that he can get them back pick which is his favorite and be ready to to drop those out and make it sound like it's it's uh make it sound like it's off the top of their head and they're just being funny so i mean that's the way that's the way tv works and yeah yeah and, which i think is fine uh, yeah and and if you can do it <clears throat> and you're and you're good at it then you know one guy it's all – the whole thing is with ghostwriting is it's all about word of mouth. So if I do a good job for a guy, the audience yeah, will never know. The audience will never know. Yeah, I don't – yeah. He'll hopefully tell other comics or recommend you in other forms or other things that will help your career. But, you know, a lot of times the guys aren't really in, in interested in giving any credit or letting anyone know that they use a ghostwriter, which is fine too. It's – you know, I do it for the paycheck. You know, pay me the yeah, money, yeah. so I don't need the uh, the glory. And then the guys who do allow or or uh, do do help and whatnot, then I can also then use the show and say I've written for this show as a as an actual legitimate credit. You think because part of like 
uh, being a comedian is kind of like a lone wolf. And do you think part of that purist mentality towards ghostwriting is what kind of can sometimes prevent it from being such a collaborative, uh, collaborative? It's a very, depending on the style of comedian and, and who, who he is, um, it's a very intimate art form and it's very intimate. Even when you're playing to a theater, it's still intimate. It's still you and your listener. And it's just, you, you have to, uh, if you're doing it right, it should be personal and it should be in your voice and something only you would come up with. And, and it's a, it's a conversation. It's a one-sided conversation for, you know, an hour or two hours. And you want that as an audience member, you want that to be legitimate and you want, um, you want that experience and you want to be able to believe and to buy in that what this guy is saying is true and is the way he really feels, whether it is true or whether it isn't, and whether it is really the way I feel off stage or not, it, you know, uh, so I think when, when, when you bring it in like that, then people, the idea of having a ghostwriter, having someone else write your stand up, it's just me- it's just. Uh, a little disingenuous to people yeah. as, as audience. So, How do they approach you? Is it always email, or do you ever get like comics directly, or do you usually get more like an agent would be like see at a comedy club, like hey, comic X wants you to write some ghost jokes for him. A lot of times, it's just a phone call or an email from a guy. Uh, yeah. I, I heard about you, something like that. I mean, now with Twitter, uh, I get are Twitter. You, are you doing ones Sometimes. for like big name people? And don't name anyone because I, I want to keep any- you, obviously. <laughs> Yeah, I have, I have, yeah. and I've done, uh, I do them now, like also, like Ghostwriter or anything else, it's not always a stand-up, it's not always comedy, it's, uh, I'll just get, you know, people contact me through my website, or through my Twitter, or through Facebook, and they'll ask me to write on, you know, I've written on strange things, strange, you know, one guy, uh, he, he's a, like a, a start, a, you know, um, a businessman who was up for being being nominated for some award. He needed me to write an essay or something or a couple of things to go along with that. It's like, okay, yeah. God, where were you in college for me, man? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. You punched up all my papers. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I, I'm in full support of it. I think it's fucking, uh, I think it's great, to be honest. Cause like, I think I guess the difference would be if you're like uh, a large comedian and your like, famous one-hour set was completely ghostwritten by somebody else and you're lying. But I don't know if that ever happened. I, who was the big one? Carlos Mencia was like the controversy with him, like stealing jokes. But that's stealing. Stealing and ghostwriting Steel's are totally different. different. Yeah. That's st- yeah, stealing is is inexcusable. Stealing is is terrible. And that used to be the way of comedy in like a certain time. Like, what is it like? Who was it? Hedberg or someone? Like, I I don't even know the whole story. But like, there was a time where you just stole each other's material. Well, it wasn't as much stealing. It was just more like you just. You, like comedy, it was just like you just like in the days of like Don Rickles, it was just there's certain yeah. That's that's what comedy is, and that's what why um, George Carlin and why especially Lenny Bruce, Mort Saul, those guys, and Joan Rivers, those guys were um, were a hinge, were a transition in mm. in comedy. Before them, it was the Borscht Belt, and it was the Catskills. And it was vaudevillian and stuff. Yeah, it was post vaudeville, but it was these guys were comics. They were doing stand up comedy, a form of it. 
but you know it was you were you're talking about your your Henny Youngman guys and mm. and and uh, all these old old Borscht Belt all these old Jewish comedians who were in a way interchangeable. Many of them, your journeyman guys, were interchangeable. And yes, they were all doing each other's jokes and they were all buying jokes and and you know stealing jokes left and right. And 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 to a point, it didn't matter because there wasn't. These guys weren't on TV. They're, if you didn't hear, if you weren't at this supper club in the Catskills this one night to hear Shecky, whoever the hell, do a joke about his wife, well, the next night somebody else could be doing that same joke to a whole different audience who didn't hear Shecky, whatever his name, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It was more about just entertaining people post-dinner before Sinatra, uh, or just entertaining people for 15, 20 minutes, an hour, whatever. And these guys wouldn't change their, their acts. They would get an act, and they would do it for the rest of their lives, many of them. But then all of a sudden Lenny Bruce came in, and then Mort Saul and, and Carlin and, and Joan Rivers and these people, and they weren't. They were writing for themselves. They were doing personal material. Instead of talking about their wife's cooking, they're talking about drugs or sex or these types of things. And it became personal it became the fan and the comic and hearing in the comic's voice and you know yeah and and, and so yeah. that's where now we we've, we've turned and now we're 40 50 years down the road and and you know people still want the personal oh they yeah don't want you know uh as much that's what of, i want you know, like i remember i watched I, I i stopped watching it but it's like an episode of mad men where they had a comedian and it was just so interesting to see the quick one-liners and that's all it was and i was like oh yeah i like i guess what you call i don't like that term but like alt comedy those types of things like storytelling or whatever yeah i like it all i don't know uh i mean and then there are still there are some guys out there who are still one-liner comics i mean that's what as stand-ups we still you want it personal, but you aspire to one line set up punch jokes. The more laughs you can get, the better in, in your time frame. So it's it's all about economy of the words. The the quicker you can get to your next laugh, ba bang, ba bang, ba bang. So there are still some guys out there who do one liner set up punch comedy that are that are closer in spirit to the Catskill guys without yeah, being yeah. that hacky way. I mean, like you're you're Bang for your buck, you're going to get nobody funnier, in my opinion, uh, consistently than Tom Cotter, you know. And Tom Cotter, who was uh, – he is just all set up punch, one-liner, 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 freaking hilarious. A lot of it actually comes jokes from his life, so it still is personal, you know. Yeah, or yeah. like Kevin Downey Jr. is the same way, just set up. And I've, I've asked these guys because it's so interesting when you are just non-sequitur after non-sequitur how they do it, you know. How do you memorize – 50 minutes of one after the next one after the next. And like, it, they just start to feed into each other. It's like how you remember your favorite album. Yeah. It's muscle memory. I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, I love those guys. I love, I love the good, real genuine setup punch one, two, you know, storytellers are, are good, but uh, you know, you don't find a, a, a you know, I, I try to mix, you know, make a story and you'll see it on this album, you know, tell a story, tell something like that. But do it in set up punch, set up punch without, you know, without just rambling on as I'm doing right now. Well, no, I appreciate it actually. I, the more you talk, the better. <laughs> That's a, um, I was gonna say, um, 
You uh, I learned that you took classes from Lewis Black, and yep. that's in uh, 1999 at the Williamstown Theater Festival. I wrote it down. Uh, but uh, was that what got you in, like, to be, get you up on stage, or were you already doing comics before com- comedy before that? Yeah, no, I wasn't. That was 99. That was my first. Um, was uh, Williamstown. Like I said earlier, the Berkshires. That's that that's Berkshires? Like, were you a theater kid in high school? It's at Williams College in Williamstown, Mass. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, like, super weird hippie kid school. That, like, ultra smart kid weird. I know where it is. No, you were thinking of the one in Great Barrington, Simon's Rock, I think. Williams is, is uh, it's Ivy I'm League. thinking Amherst, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, you're yep, thinking Yep, yep. No, Hampshire, Hampshire. Oh, That's okay. the, yeah, but Williams, very, very, very good. Williams is Ivy League, and during the summers, they have the Williamstown Theater Festival, which is where a lot of, it's summer stock, uh, it's a whole festival where a lot of shows go from there right to Broadway. It's chuck full of, uh, of generally of Broadway stars, of movie stars who, when movie stars want to do theater, they'll go to Williamstown, um, and they have an and they have an apprenticeship program where uh, young actors can apply. And if you're accepted, you apprentice. You take you you work on crews. You work. You know. You get to appear in the shows as is basically as extras, stuff like that. Townspeople, whatever. Um, and you work on lighting. You work on set. And you're working s- every department of the theater. You're learning. And on the days that you're not working, you're taking classes. And the classes are taught by these amazing world-famous directors and choreographers and actors. And, um, and one of the classes is a stand-up class that's taught by Lewis Black. So I wanted to do Williamstown. I'm not, you know, when you say, yes, I did a lot of theater growing up, but I'm not what you would think of as a quote-unquote theater kid i wasn't the drama nerd i did theater because theater was a way of getting comfortable and maintaining comfort and poise on stage when i became a stand-up you know what i'm saying absolutely Uh, so having stage presence is stuff i learned through theater so i uh there's 99 or something 91 apprentices at williamstown and I'm, everybody else is doing monologues and and, uh, and whatnot the first day, and I just did stand up. And I'm like, the only reason I'm here is that William uh, Lewis Black teaches a stand up course, and so I did that. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, it was awesome. I mean, it was it was what a great summer. Uh, the summer I was there, just to give you an idea of the level of of talent that they bring in uh, or that they had. We had uh, it was, let's see. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow was the biggest star there that summer. She had just won her Oscar for Shakespeare in Love. Uh, Ethan Hawke was there. David Schwimmer at the height of Friends phenomena was there. Uh, John Spencer from the West Wing was there. Uh, Leo? What's that? Leo. That's Leo. Leo McGarry. The very first person to ever compliment me after I did stand-up ever because we did a night that Lewis hosted. I I got off stage. I, I did it. I went outside right away. I uh, I lit up a cigarette, and he came out to have a smoke right next to me, and he congratulated me. In fact, uh, come on, I'm I sorry, talking, I'm like freaking out. Like, I how do you not do stand up the rest of your life if Leo fucking McGarity, the guy from The Rock, uh, told you to do do good? 
guy from L.A. Law. Yeah, that was right before that was right before he went off to shoot the pilot for The West Wing. He, he actually was telling us that summer about this new show. And oh um, <laughs> yeah, so and in fact, just to take you back to that Colbert party when I talked to um, Bradley Whitford for you know for fifteen twenty minutes, uh, that's the first story I tell him. Anytime I meet somebody from The West Wing, I tell him how how much you know John's. John Spencer was the first person to ever compliment me after a stand-up set and all that. I you have no uh, idea. I can't wait to tell my my mother-in-law that story. She's gonna freak the fuck out. Oh, really? we, uh, he was really cool. Yeah. So um, yeah. So then then I was in a play at Williamstown because, like I said, we could audition for some of the you know small roles and stuff. And um, I I got to be uh, in the Taming of the Shrew, which is a Shakespeare play. Are you are you a fan of Cheers? Oh yeah, I know Cheers. All right, I was a cheers nut. It was my at least up to that point in my life, it was my favorite show, and uh, uh, it was directed and starring Roger Rees, who was Robin Colcord. Oh my god! And his leading lady in the show was BB North, who was Lilith. Which one was she? I, I don't know Cheers super duper well. She's wow. Lilith Crane, the Frasier's wife, Lilith. Oh, yeah. you're so lucky my wife is not in this room right now. The last, like, five minutes she'd be screaming her lungs out. B.B. North is a huge Broadway star. She's a Tony Award yeah. winner. And, she's... and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a 19-year-old. With those people. Fan of, fan of, of, stan- or, of, of Cheers. Getting to be in a play with two characters from Cheers. I get to spend the whole summer rubbing elbows with Tony Award winners and, and amazing things and watching them perform. And taking class from Lewis Black and uh, making lifelong friends off of that one. Off of that. In fact, I just spent an hour, two hours today right before this podcast talking to a friend from my Williamstown days on the phone. Oh, that's really sweet. That's so cool. So many people came out of there. Char- you know Charlie Day? From, yeah, it's uh, always sunny. Yeah, it's always sunny. He, was, he, was he wasn't an apprentice the year I was. He was like in the their non-equity or their equity actors campaign, but... He was one of the amateur actors there, Charlie Day, and he did I think like four or five years at Williamstown. Wow, yeah, a lot of just a million people just. And can anyone go see these plays up there? Yeah, you have to buy a ticket. That's, that's it. Because why did I never do? I didn't even grow up that far from there. I grew up in like forty minutes from Springfield, and then that leaves a little bit farther. Every summer from, like, June through the end of August, Williamstown Theater. It hasn't. Highly recommended. And not until I've met my wife have I really become to have, like, an appreciation of theater. I, I like, we're going to see, I got a Book of Mormon tickets for Christmas. Dude, you're going to freaking love it. Here on Broadway? On Broadway? On Broadway, too. That is. I've been to Broadway once my entire life, and it was cool. I, uh, I tell you, you asked earlier, you know, whether or not I freak out or anything with celebrities and shit like that. I said no, that I, in general, don't, unless it's. And, and one of the few times that I freaked out, uh, I was leaving the Daily Show Christmas party two years ago, and you know, and we're leaving as Josh Gad comes in, and I had just seen him in Book of Mormon months ago. But it was—it's oh, my what? favorite. What? It, Book of Mormon is my favorite piece of art. Period. Wow. You know. You just put everything up there, film, television, books, the blah, blah, blah. The best thing I've ever seen was the Book of Mormon with the original Broadway cast. It, it's so goddamn fantastic. You were, yeah, I've, you were I've heard it. just nothing, nothing but – those South Park guys, I, sometimes I don't think society values them enough. 
They really are. I mean, South Park is its own fucking level. Team America, World Police, Basketball, and now fucking... Oh, my God. Um, Well, before we end up wrapping this up, um, I can't believe it took so long. You're on a podcast, and I didn't bring up your amazing podcast, Movie Preview Review Podcast, which um, I've listened to a ton of them, um, because Adam, I was looking up to Adam, and he, he popped up, and then he mentioned it, and like, way to separate yourself from the noise, like... A, a podcast, the op- I'm going to shit on noisy podcasts, like the one I have right now, <laughs> a couple people talking. No, I think they're great, but like, yeah, it's really funny. I, I personally like to listen to ones of shitty movies, so I, I listened to your he- Heaven is for Real one while I was doing dishes. <laughs> it was so good. Oh, cool. <laughs> Fuck yeah. that movie. I didn't even see it. I just know it's terrible. Yeah, man. Those were fun. I got to do more of them. We're, we're, we're right now looking for a new studio space or on a bit of a high. Do you do, and you do live ones? We've done it live, yeah. Well, we were doing it um, for a while at the Creek in the Cave, which is in Queens. It's a cool performance space, stand-up. Um, very cool stand-up club. Uh, every show is free. There's no cover. There's no drink. Where minimums. in Queens? It's very, uh, right out in uh, Long Island City. It's a small yeah, space. Okay. You know, and, and a lot of guys go out. and It's just a really cool space, and they have their own podcast studio in the basement so we were doing it there for a little while um and before that i was doing it you know my own where it was just me doing review and the the premise uh, for your listeners of the the movie preview review is each week we review new movies but we have only seen the previews so what you can tell from there and so um i started that just when i was between writing jobs and just something to write and uh, and then it became it was me just doing them, and it became popular. But it wasn't that format wasn't sustainable, so we played around with it. Now I like what we're doing, which which is more of an improv theme where it's me and a guest, and I have uh, I have a little crew of guys around me. Um, Adam being one of them, and my wife, and uh, we just we have a conversation with our guest, who's a comic. And we watch movie previews and kind of all discuss it together, which which is something that I enjoy doing, and uh, and it's a more sustainable format. So as soon as we find ourselves a studio space, it's uh, we're going to be back up and running with new episodes. And I've already got some really cool uh, guests lined up that want to do it. So I'm, I'm hoping to get it back soon. If I may suggest, I hope you do one for that uh, Kirk Cameron Saves Christmas. Ah. <sighs> We would have torn that in, in half. Uh, I, you know, and with it, with, with, it's like a podcast. Like, So when you find the podcast, it doesn't matter if the movie's new or old. So that episode will be fucking incredible if you ever end up doing it. Because it's just yes. – the jokes are just there. Just watching it is perfect. And to top it all off, they use ska music, which I personally love ska and no one, no one ever does. But I love ska. But somehow they make – they somehow find a way to insult everyone on every level on a religious and philosophical standpoint – and then you ska music. So they're like, you could tell what year they're still like thinking like, oh, it's 97, ska's in. You're like, oh, Kurt Cameron, get with it. Yeah, I got to I gotta get back into it. I might even do a couple of the old form where I actually just sit and write uh, a whole thing and just do a review in the meantime till we find something. But um, yeah, thank you for bringing that podcast up. I, I enjoyed it. Um, people can find you at kevinbertini.com. Do you have all your other stuff? Like, to, uh, I'll put it in the beginning too. The best 
yeah, the best uh, thing is is my website, Kevin Bartini, B-A-R-T-I-N-I, KevinBartini.com, because that's your one-stop shop. You can, uh, you'll be able to get the new album there. You can be connected over to the podcast from there. You can also follow me on Facebook and Twitter from there. It's just everything is that's the in reach me if you want to email me is right through the site and all that your website's great whoever if you do it or whoever does it just does a really good job it's just like very clean and like professional looking yeah my manager built the yeah i tried doing a square spice site and fuck that i uh this is i I work pretty hard on the show but this is how i i started off making a website and i sucked at it so i just uh got picked up by podcast network instead so, well, yeah, by the time this will go up, you'll be that, that will be on there. So you'll actually have more viewers. And uh, I know you said I'll put this up. Uh, I know not till after the 13th because your album will drop. And then. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think so. I think I, I, I figure I'm still trying to understand the, you know, marketing in this this age and stuff like that. And you do podcasts will be out there forever. So yeah, like, no one knows. It makes sense. Like at first I was thinking, well, I should I should do interviews leading up to it, but it's like, it's not the premiere of a movie and something like a podcast. If somebody's listening to it, I would think if they wanted to check my stuff out, they would go do it right away. Not, Oh yeah. I got to remember next week when that album comes out. To, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. I think that makes most sense. It says, okay. And it's available. And as this show grows, more people come and, and any podcast and then people find back episodes. Yeah. So it, 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 seriously, like I was, me and Adam were talking about like, any smart comedian right now, like, you could fucking do a lot of work from your home by getting on podcasts, big and small. Like, just get on everyone, because your name's in iTunes right there. You know, people look at that stuff, and everything, you don't know what leads to what, and then it's just like, it lives there. Yeah, that's my attitude, is, is especially with podcasts and things. I mean, like, literally, we're doing it in Skype. I'm, I'm sitting in my I don't. Even, I'm wearing pajamas underneath. Yeah, it, it it gets no easier. You 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 know you, you you have a conversation with somebody and and then and then it's it's out there forever. Yeah, and it, uh, it's and why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't it, you? It's the you smartest marketing, it. and it's surprising to find people who aren't hip to when things change. Yeah, New York is behind uh, L.A. as far as podcasts. Yeah, are you going to go to Podfest? <laughs> uh, is that out in Los well, Angeles? Well, the they're doing a New York one, like, in a couple weeks. Uh, maybe. I don't know. I haven't been invited. Like, we're not doing our podcast. No, yeah. Before. It's, um... Of course, we're not currently airing, um, maybe yeah. next year. But, uh, I'll be, you know, I'll, I'll do... I'll, yeah, if somebody has me, I'll do their show if they're on the podcast. The, from the New York one, it looks different than L.A., where it's, like, a bunch of live podcasts during a weekend throughout the city. And I think L.A., it's just, like a Comic-Con convention center and everybody happens to be there and you can go to the different live ones. That's the up and downside of LA versus New York, but yeah, no, it's great. I, I, it's awesome. Um, well, thank you a thousand times over. This is a blast. Um, yeah, if you ever want to come back, please, anytime, if you ever need to any help promoting anything or need to put something out, like, you know, you have my email, like tap into me. Like it was fun. Thank you. Yeah. No, buddy, it was great. You're a great interviewer, and I appreciate. Oh, thank it. you. You did your research. That was a good thing. So I would uh, gladly, anytime you'd like. Oh to have yeah, me on, you you're gonna hear back from me. Hit me with an email anytime. Yeah. Because like I said, yeah. I, I enjoy. Do you doing tour it, a lot? So. Like, do, I don't know the Providence comedy scene, but I'm trying to learn my way into that. So if there's, uh, understand. yeah, I tour. I haven't done Providence, although. Well, Providence um, used to Prov- suck. There's a Catch a Rising Star. Yeah, yeah, but it's in like a hotel or a casino, and then there's oh, then definitely do it. <laughs> I actually think it's technically like one of those. They say Providence, but it's in a different town. Right. 
Yeah, I've not done Providence much. I do uh, what's close to there is the Boston. Yep. And a lot in Connecticut. What, do you do New Haven uh, a lot? Do you do New Haven a lot? New Joker's Wild in New Haven. I should hopefully I'll be there this year. I don't have a booking on uh, Connecticut. I mean, because because now I've been been in it for what thirteen, fourteen. So yeah. I've been I performed all over uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New York State. You know, I, I I've I've hit every exit. I'm sure <laughs> on all the highways and done between the steakhouses and the backroom bars and comedy clubs and. Uh, yeah, anyone listening to this uh, that book shows and comedy, book this man. Please do. Do it. <laughs> um, 